Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. As always, I'm JT, and each week I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. This life, this existence, is this the beginning for us, or just a continuation? The day we die, what happens? Is there more to it than the simple cessation of bodily functions? Tonight I'm going to discuss one of the greatest mysteries of life. What happens when we die, and specifically, what about reincarnation? You know, one of my earliest memories as a child was wondering about this life. What's it all about? I remember having this sensation of uh, wondering these feelings that you have, your body. Are you more than just your body? Is there more to it, you know? Uh, what, what happens when we die? I'd, I'd hear people talk about dying, and obviously at such a young age, you can't quite wrap your head around it. But uh, it's always been a fascination to me and many millions of other people around the world, I'm sure. Uh, the song that I just played, that's one of the most enduring songs about reincarnation. And it, you know, in that, in that song, it basically talks about, you know, going from life to life, living on. And there are stories that some of which I'll be covering on tonight's episode, especially of young children remembering past lives. So this will be the first episode of a multi-part series, I'm sure, because there are many, many stories out there about reincarnation. And uh, I've always found them fascinating. Not all are the best, and of course there are always some hoaxes and fabrications along the way. But as always, I put the information out there for you to make up your own mind and make up your own decisions. So first and foremost, as always, I just wanted to make sure that I give some shout-outs to all the people who really support the show. And I'm very appreciative of it. So Brad in Michigan, thanks for reaching out and asking me about my podcast and, and wanting to listen to some of the episodes. I really appreciate it. Uh, Eddie in California, of course, Adriana and Nico in Texas, and everybody who's fighting on the front lines right now dealing with uh, the ongoing issue with COVID-19. Uh, my hat's off to you. I really appreciate what you do. It's not easy, no matter what people feel about masks and social distancing and whatnot. You know, these people are out there every day putting their lives on the line dealing with this. So, um, you know, my hats are off to you. I appreciate anyone in healthcare right now dealing with this. Of course, Harry and Lisa in North Carolina. Brooke and her family in Virginia, I really appreciate what you do. Everyone in France who's been listening, really appreciate your support. It, it really humbles me. Thank you. And I've now had listens from 16 different states in the U.S. So, look, that's that's really that's really humbling for someone like me. I really do appreciate it. As always, I appreciate everyone who listens to the show. I've had some really good conversations this week with a few friends of the show. It's been quite good talking about different things, talking about uh, tonight's main topic, about reincarnation. That's been quite good. Um, and in studying up for this program and, and reading about some of these cases, some of which I'd never heard of. And again, as I say, that's a lot of the reason why I do this program. I want to make sure that I get the information out there for you to make up your own minds, look at the information, and uh, make up your own opinion on them. But at the same time, I learned so much. And there are several cases that I hadn't heard about or I'd only heard certain details about, and I've heard much more about them now. Now, a lot of the information on tonight's show has at least been influenced by a podcast that I found, and it's called Past Lives Revisited. And this podcast comes out of Australia. And uh, I really appreciate the the fine work that the host has done over there. She's done a really good job of cataloging some of these cases. And again, she doesn't come at it from the opinion of a 
you know, blind believer that accepts every single fact or every single thing that's said. In fact, uh, you know, she said uh, in her intro to the podcast that, you know, early on, it's not something that really jived with her beliefs growing up. So it's it's something that, uh, you know, took a bit of getting used to. And this is what I found that oftentimes people who start looking into this, you know, they start out being hardcore, you know, skeptics and saying this just can't happen. And, uh, you know, as time goes on, they go, well, maybe there's much more to this than meets the eye. And again, it just brings us back to that subject. What's the difference between a skeptic and a debunker? You know, a skeptic will look at the information and look at it with a skeptical eye. As Mr. Carl Sagan used to say, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And I understand that. I understand that reincarnation is not something that comes naturally to many people. And especially many people, uh, you know, in their religious beliefs, they, they believe it just can't happen. But a true skeptic is someone who will listen to information. And if new information comes to light that makes them change their thoughts or opinions, they will make that shift. Whereas a debunker is someone who is simply out there to discredit any information, no matter how compelling or how factual it may be. So, uh, look, I really do appreciate this podcast. And, and as I say, I really appreciate it being there. It's another great reference out there. So it's a great tool. It's been something that I've really enjoyed listening to for tonight's show. Well, now that we've got all that out of the way, folks, uh, as always, I appreciate you listening to what I have to say. Um, I also just wanted to make sure to remind you that you can go and follow the Paranormal Sun and the Fortunate Sun on Instagram. You can find Facebook groups for the Paranormal Sun and the Fortunate Sun. You can also go to www.theparanormalsun.com and find a website about the Paranormal Sun, the Fortunate Sun, Myself, I try to go on there and blog a bit, give you a few comments. If you feel generous, you can go on there. You can uh, give a donation through PayPal. You can also go and uh, find us on Patreon if that's what you want to do. But uh, I appreciate any and all support I get. I appreciate some of the kind words I get from people. There are times, as with any venture, that some kind words can really go a long way to keep the wind in your sail, keep you moving forward, and keep you going in a positive direction. So for everyone who reaches out and has kind words to say, look, I really do appreciate them. So with that all having been said, now it's on to the ongoing news segment of the Paranormal Sun, which is titled The News of the Damned. For those of you who may be listening to the Paranormal Sun for the first time, Charles Fort was one of the pillars and one of the real founding members of Paranormal and unexplained information as far as cataloging and presenting it to the world at large. So Charles Fort referred to any information that was excluded or ignored by mainstream science and the mainstream establishment as damned data. Therefore, the name, the name, the news of the damned as the news segment, it's my homage to Charles Fort. And each, each episode, I try to make sure that I have at least three good articles for you to be interested in. And as always, there are links in the show notes. There'll be links basically to everything I discuss uh, in the show notes if it comes from an article, if it's from another podcast, etc. So as a lead-in to tonight's segment of the News of the Damned, I just wanted to bring a case that uh, Adriana in Texas sent my way, which is quite interesting. And basically, there is an ongoing group of sightings going on in Texas. Last last program I read about the one in Houston. 
and there's some UFO lights that have been spotted in Seguin, Texas. Now, the thing about it is when I did a very quick search online, because I wanted to see if I could find something more concrete about this, uh, there was just the video. But just as I glanced at some of the Google results um, on the first page and second page, there have been a lot of cases over the years in Seguin, Texas. So it does seem to be a UFO hotspot. Now, this particular video is of a what looks to be a very blurry light, and then they run it through a filter of some sort. I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of what it was off the top of my head, but the lights basically then show up in a V formation of lights, and I counted six lights, but there may be more than that in this formation. Um, it is triangular in shape. Um, as always, you know, I try to leave the speculating to others, but um, it is quite interesting, and it's definitely worth a look, so I'll have a link in the show notes to the video, so you can go over there and read that. Now, the first article on the news of the dam tonight. Now, all of these tonight came from Coast to Coast AM, so I found three really interesting stories on the one site, so I thought, well, you know, why go anywhere else? So, Coast to Coast AM, for those of you who do not know, Coast to Coast AM was basically founded by the late, great Art Bell. Uh, Art Bell is the person who I always sign off the show with a quote from him every week. And, you know, Art Bell started out covering politics, but he very quickly got into much more uh, mysterious and unexplained phenomenon, you know, UFOs. He's one of the first people who really gave a lot of credence to the Bob Lazar case. He had Bob Lazar on the air. Over the years, he had many other, you know, very very famous uh, people from different cases, uh, UFO uh, studies, so on and so forth. And he's also, you know, he did a lot of programs around exorcism and Bigfoot and cryptids and you name it, all kinds of things. So uh, this program still goes on and it's hosted by George Norrie. And as I say, in my years of listening to this and really kind of gathering this type of information, being a lifelong student of the paranormal and the unexplained, George Norrie is the one very large scale host that has, you know, replied to an email that I sent him and, you know, has gotten back to me on a couple of occasions. And I really appreciate it. Coast to Coast has several million listeners um, in the U.S. and Canada. So, I mean, it's between six and eight million off the top of my head each program. So for a host of a radio program that large to take the time to reply to me, you know, look, it really means a lot to me. So anyway, um, this first article is about uh, a giant bat, basically. So this one is titled, Human-Sized Bat Horrifies the Internet, July 2nd, 2020. And this is from Tim Bunnell. Now, Tim Bunnell is one of the, I'm not quite sure what his title is, but he's a producer or one of the web, uh, uh, you know, the website managers over at Coast to Coast. And um, so he's done a bit of a write-up because when I first saw this, it was basically just a YouTube video, but Tim's done a bit of a write-up, which I'm very appreciative for. So it says, a nightmarish image circulating online purportedly shows a human-sized bat in the Philippines. However, the true nature of the creature is a little more complicated than that. The unsettling photo initially popped up online last Wednesday when a Twitter user shared the image and wrote, remember when I told you all about the Philippines having human-sized bats? Yeah, this was what I was talking about. Unsurprisingly, the post quickly went viral with over 100,000 horrified social media users sharing the photograph. 
Alas, as is often the case with images that capture the imagination of the internet, there is more to the story than meets the eye. The creature featured in the photo is a species of bat native to the Philippines and known as a giant golden-crowned flying fox. While they do grow to tremendous size, the description of this particular animal as human-sized is generous at best, and as later noted by the individual who posted the photo, the bat is about the size of a six-year-old child. That clarification is likely to provide little solace for people unnerved by the image, since the idea of a youngster-shaped, youngster-sized bat existing in the world is still pretty unsettling. To that end, for those of you who may have been hoping that the photo was a hoax, that appears to be the original source for the photo was found online, seen in the video below, and we regret to inform you that indeed the monstrous bat is quite real. So look, folks, this is quite a large bat, but again, as they say, you know, it's not human size, it's not man size, still quite a large bat. And again, um, just looking, glancing at the screen capture that I've got in front of me, it uh, seems to be a bit of forced perspective as well. You know, just just looking at it and um, the way that uh, it was filmed. But anyway, you know, as always, we'll have a link about it in the show notes. And this isn't necessarily a hoax, quote unquote, but, uh, you know, it is a bit of a misrepresentation. And as I say, you know, uh, I always do my best to try and cover any of these things that may be interesting, whether they fit any certain agenda or not. That's not what the Paranormal Sun is about. The Paranormal Sun is about providing the information and letting you uh, make up your own mind and make your own conclusions. But uh, yeah, nonetheless, uh, as we all know, some of the jungle areas of this world, there are some pretty amazing cryptids out there. So yeah, it is a very interesting uh, video. So the next one here is from July 2nd as well. And this one is titled Entity Spotted in Google Earth Image of Argentina's Presidential Palace. Now, this one, folks, uh, is also by Tim Banal. And this it was raised by Scott Waring, and I've discussed him a few times on the program before. I don't know Scott Waring. I haven't met him or had any interactions with him. But Scott Waring is the gentleman who suggested that there was a UFO hangar in Indonesia, so on and so forth. Now, it could be, it may not be. All I'm saying is this is someone who seems to spend a great deal of time looking at images online. So, you know, take it for what it is. So it says, an anomaly hunter scouring Google Earth images for strange and unusual sites spotted what he believes to be an alien roaming the halls of Argentina's presidential mansion. The very weird find was made by indefatigable UFO researcher Scott Waring as he was looking at the mapping services street level and interior photos of the palatial estate known as Casa Rosada, where the leader of Argentina resides. Much to his profound surprise, his virtual exploration of the site took a strange turn when he stumbled upon an image which seems to show an entity of some kind. In the photo, what appears to be the almost transparent outline of a figure can be seen walking across a well-polished hallway in the palace. Based on some doorknobs visible in the image, Waring estimates that the eerie entity stands approximately three feet tall. In light of that, he argued that the visitor was in fact an alien that is cloaked in spying on the Argentinian president Alberto Fernandez. While the possibility that Google Earth inadvertently captured a glimpse of an alien on a clandestine mission to Earth on the president of Argentina is a fantastic scenario that we'd like to believe, a more down-to-earth explanation of the anomaly is the image is that it is probably some kind of photographic glitch as has been seen in the past. Those disappointed by that reasoning can take solace in the fact that one can't rule out that the oddity was a ghost, which seems relatively more believable than the ET hypothesis. So again, folks, um, I always leave these decisions up to you. Um, it is interesting, and 
at the very least, if this is just a glitch, it is quite interesting to show uh, some of the tricks of light and perspective that different photo and video capturing technology can have. So in other words, um, the saying goes that just because it's on film doesn't necessarily mean that it's some something out of this world. So again, I'll have a link to this in the show notes so you can make up your own mind, make up your own uh, decision on this, have a look. But yeah, nonetheless, it is quite interesting. Um, again, I, I don't want to weigh in too heavily on this, but if this was a glitched image of a person, although it could be a child, I do find it interesting that if this was... let So let's say that this was some type of residual effect on the film, you know, on the filming. Why is it of something that's about three feet tall versus an adult? So yeah, uh, as always, I leave that up to you to make up your mind. And now on to the third and final article for the News of the Damned. And this one I chose specifically for Adriana in Texas, who's been to Iceland, quite enjoyed Iceland. And so when I saw this uh, article, it uh, quite piqued my interest. And this one is titled, Exorcist Enlisted to Eradicate Evil Spirits on Icelandic Farm. This one is from June the 30th, 2020, and it's also written up by Tim Benal. So it says, plans to demolish a farmstead in Iceland had to be put on hold so that an exorcist could visit the scene and eradicate sinister spirits believed to be lingering at the location. The ceremony was reportedly conducted on a property in the town of Hovensfuller, Hovensfuller, uh, sorry, folks, as you can imagine, Icelandic names are not very easy to pronounce, but it's spelled H-V-O-L-S-V-O-L-L-U-R, and remarkably came at the behest of the country's national power company, which had ac acquired the land as part of a forthcoming building project. Upon consulting with the owner of the farm, they were told of a dark presence which he claims to have encountered at the site nearly 20 years ago. According to Daniel Magnuson, the eerie incident occurred back in 2002 when an inexplicable fog appeared on the land and greatly disturbed his cattle. They ran out of the cowshed bellowing and wailing, he recalled. When I calmed them down, I went into the cowshed and it was like I had been splashed in the face with icy water. As he advanced further into the building, Magnuson said he felt like I had been plunged into water several meters deep. I finally left when I couldn't breathe anymore. However, the strangeness did not end there as, upon exiting the building and regaining his composure, Magnuson felt a disembodied hand on his shoulder and heard a voice that said, Be calm, it's about to attack you. He is trying to steal you away. Although he did not explain how the eerie incident came to an end, the farmer indicated that he later spoke to a seer, who told him that the unsettling encounter was caused by a spirit which was jealous of his successful farm. Despite the fact that the unnerving event took place almost two decades ago, the farmer still felt compelled to share the story with the power company when they purchased the land, and he argued them to dispel the spirit would work before before work began on the property. In a testament to how serious such supernatural events are taken in Iceland, a, a spokesperson for the company mused that, We thought it was self-evident and natural to go with the wishes and recommendations of Daniel about getting an exorcist before the building was demolished. He knows this area best of all. Well, look, folks, I mean, there have been many cases over the years. And again, it's not everyone's forte. It's not something that everyone agrees with. But, uh, you know, I've read of many cases over the years where an exorcism or a cleansing of sorts happens and then uh, issues go away in certain areas. So is it negative energy? Is it an, 
a demonic entity? Is it something from another dimension? Who knows? But nonetheless, it's always an interesting article. And again, I'll have a link in the show notes. So with that, that wraps up the news of the damned for this evening. Thanks very much for listening. When our days on this planet end, what happens? Do we go to some afterlife to live for eternity as the Romans, Greeks, and Egyptians believe? Do we go somewhere like Sheol from ancient Judaism, where the good and evil reside in the same dark plane of existence? Do we simply end once our brain shuts down, as the heads of tribe of Africa and many other hunter-gatherers believe? The majority of scientific minds believe that there is no life once our brain ceases to function, that we simply no longer exist in any form. Or could one of the many religions who believe in reincarnation be closer to the reality of our existence? Reincarnation, which literally means to take on the flesh again, is generally a concept that implies that upon some people's deaths, their soul, mind, or consciousness is transferred to a newborn. It sounds like the stuff of fantasy, but some scientists do believe that it's a feasible concept. Probably the most common association of reincarnation, at least to the Western culture, is via Buddhism. Rebirth in Buddhism refers to its teaching that the actions of a person lead to a new existence after death, in an endless cycle called samsara. This cycle is considered to be dukkha, unsatisfactory and painful. The cycle stops only if liberation is achieved by insight and the extinguishing of desire. Rebirth is one of the fundamental doctrines of Buddhism, along with karma, nirvana, and moksha. The rebirth doctrine in Buddhism, sometimes referred to as reincarnation, asserts that rebirth does not necessarily take place as another human being, but as an existence in one of the six gati, or realms, called Baka Chakra. The six realms of rebirth include Deva, which is heavenly, Asura, which is a demigod, Menusaya, which is a human, Tiryak, which are animals, Preta, which are ghosts, and Naraka, which are residents of hell. Rebirth, as stated by various Buddhist traditions, is determined by karma, with good realms favored by Kushala, which is good karma, while a rebirth in evil realms is a consequence of Akushala, or bad karma. While Nirvana is the ultimate goal of Buddhist teaching, much of the traditional Buddhist practice has been centered on gaining merit and merit transfer, whereby one gains rebirth in the good realms and avoids rebirth in the evil realms. Theodore Furnoy was among the first to study a claim of past life recall in the course of his investigations of medium Helen Smith, published in 1900, in which he defined the possibility of cryptonesia, which occurs when a forgotten memory returns without its being recognized as such by the subject, who believes it is something new and original. In some accounts, Carl Gustav Jung, like Flournoy, based in Switzerland, also emulated him in his thesis based on a, on a study of cryptonesia, in psychicism. Later, Jung would emphasize the importance of the persistence of memory and ego in psychological study of reincarnation. This concept of rebirth necessarily implies the continuity of personality that one is able, at least potentially, to remember that one has lived through previous existences, and these existences were one's own. Dr. Evan Stevenson, former professor of psychiatry at the University of Virginia, School of Medicine and former chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Neurology, dedicated the majority of his career to finding evidence of reincarnation. Until his death in 2007, Dr. Stevenson claimed to have found over 3,000 examples of reincarnation during his time, 
which he shared with the scientific community. In a study titled Birthmarks and Birth Defects Corresponding to Wounds on Deceased Persons, Dr. Stevenson used facial recognition to analyze similarities between the claimant and their allegedly prior incarnation, while also studying birthmarks. He wrote in his study, about 35% of children who claim to remember previous lives have birthmarks and or birth defects that they, or adult informants, attribute to wounds on a person whose life the child remembers. The cases of 210 such children have been investigated. The birthmarks were usually areas of hairless, puckered skin. Some were areas of little or no pigmentation, hypopigmented macules. Others were areas of increased pigmentation, hyperpigmented nevi. The birth defects were nearly always of rare types. In cases in which a deceased person was identified, the details of whose life unmistakably matched the child's statements. A close correspondence was nearly always found between the birthmarks and or birth defects of the child and the wounds on the deceased person. In 43 of 49 cases in which a medical doctor, usually a post-mortem report, was obtained, it confirmed that the correspondence between wounds and birthmarks or, or birth defects existed. Now I will be covering Dr. Stevenson's research further in the future, but for now I wanted to cover some famous cases and present the evidence for you to examine yourself. The first case I have is the case of Ryan Hammonds. This story is about Ryan Hammonds, a young boy living in Muskogee, Oklahoma. He was born to Christian parents in 2005. His dad is a police officer, and his mom is a county clerk deputy. When Ryan was four years old, he started playing the game of being a director of movies. Then his nightmares started. He began waking up in the night, screaming and holding his chest. He started saying that his heart exploded. He spoke about things of which he never had any knowledge of. He spoke about Hollywood, which was several thousands of miles away from his home. When he was five years old, he confided in his mother one evening before bed. He said, Mom, I have something I need to tell you. I used to be somebody else. Then Ryan decided to tell his mother what it is like to die, according to Dr. Tucker's book. He began describing an awesome bright light and said you should go to the light. He said everyone comes back and that he knew Cindy before. He claimed he picked her as his mother. Later, Ryan relayed information to Cindy about an event that occurred during her pregnancy, information he should not have ever known. He said he saw it from heaven. The preschooler would then talk about going home to Hollywood and would cry for his mother to take him there. His mother said he would tell stories about meeting stars like Rita Hayworth, traveling overseas, on lavish vacations, dancing on Broadway, and working for an agency where people would change their names. She said her son even recalled that the street he lived on had the word rock in it. His stories were so detailed and they were so extensive that it just, just wasn't like a child could have made it up, she said. Cindy said she was raised Baptist and had never really thought about reincarnation, so she decided to keep her son's memories a secret, even from her own husband. Privately, she checked out books about Hollywood from the local library, hoping something inside would help her son make sense of his strange memories, and help her son cope with his sometimes troubling past lives. The memories and the details of the stories were just getting way too specific, and it was clear that this five-year-old child was not just telling tales. One of the things which convinced his mother that he wasn't lying was the fact that Ryan kept asking for True Aid, a drink which was popular in the 1940s, but was discontinued decades before Ryan was even born. Then we found the picture, and it changed everything, she said. 
That photo, in one of the books from the library, was a publicity shot from the 1932 movie, Night After Night, starring Mae West in her film debut. She turns to the page in the book, and I say, That's me. That's who I was, Ryan remembers. Cindy said she was shocked, and only more confused, because the man Ryan was pointing to was an extra in the film, with no spoken lines. But finally, she had a face to match to her son's strange memories, giving her the courage to ask someone for help. That someone was Dr. Jim Tucker, M.D., the Bonner-Lowry Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Science at the University of Virginia. The child psychiatrist has spent more than a decade studying the cases of children, usually between the ages of two and six years old, who say they remember a past life. In his book, Return to Life, Tucker details some of the American cases he has studied over the years, including Ryan's. These cases demand an explanation, as Tucker said. We can't just write them off or explain them away as just some sort of normal cultural thing. Tucker's office contains the files of more than 2,500 children, cases accumulated from all over the world by his predecessor Ian Stevenson. Stevenson, who died in 2007, began investigating the strange phenomenon back in 1961 and kept detailed interviews and evidence on each case. Tucker has painstakingly coded the handwritten files, discovering intriguing patterns. For instance, 70% of the children say they died violent or unexpected deaths in their previous lives, and males account for 73% of those deaths, mirroring the statistics of those who die of unnatural causes in the general population. There'd be no way to orchestrate that statistic with over 2,000 cases, Tucker said. Tucker said the majority of children he had investigated say they remembered average lives. Rarely do they claim memories of someone famous. He said Ryan's case is one of the most unusual because of the incredible detail he was able to provide. Tucker, with help from researchers working on a documentary, tried to identify the man Ryan pointed to in the book about Hollywood. After weeks of research, a film archivist, combing through original production material for the movie, Night After Night, was able to confirm who he was. His name was Marty Martin, a former movie extra who later became a powerful Hollywood agent and died in 1964. If you look at a picture of a guy with no lines in a movie and then tell me about his life, I don't think many of us would have come up with Marty Martin's life, Tucker said. Yet Ryan provided many details that really did fit with his life. After digging through old records, almost none of them available on the internet, and tracking down Martin's own daughter, Tucker was able to confirm 55 details Ryan gave about Martin's life. It turned out Martin wasn't just a movie extra, just as Ryan had said. He had also danced on Broadway, traveled overseas to Paris, and worked at an agency where stage names were often created for new clients. There were a plethora of other details which Ryan was able to accurately depict about Marty Martin's life, including that he drove green Rolls Royce and how many children he had. Tucker also discovered that Ryan's claim that he lived on, on a street with the word rock in it was nearly spot on. Martin lived at 825 North Roxbury Drive in Beverly Hills. Tucker was also able to confer about obscure facts that Ryan gave, how many children Martin had, how many times he was married, while Martin's own daughter grew up thinking her father had just one sister, Tucker was able to confirm he actually had two. Again, just as Ryan had claimed. Dr. Tucker's research is not without its critics. When his work was recently featured in the University of Virginia magazine, some readers shared their outrage in the comments section. One reader wrote, He was appalled that this kind of work is being done at the university. Another called Tucker's research pseudoscience. Tucker said he's only trying to apply the rules of science to the mystery of reincarnation. Even with Ryan's case, there was one fact the detail-obsessed scientists thought the little boy had gotten wrong. 
He said he didn't see why God would let you live to be 61 and then make you come back as a baby, Tucker said. That statement seemed to be incorrect because Martin's death certificate listed his age at 59 years old. When he died, but as Tucker dug deeper, he was able to uncover census records showing Martin was in fact born in 1903 and not 1905, meaning that Ryan's statement, not his official death certificate, was indeed correct. As Ryan aged, he said his memories of Marty Martin's life were fading, which Dr. Tucker said is typical as children get older. Ryan said, well, he's glad he had the experience. He's also happy to put to move on and just be a kid. Now, folks, that's a very intriguing story. And over at the Past Lives Revisited podcast, the host there has done a really good job of fleshing this case out much better than I have here. But um, it's, it's a really fascinating case. There were many other things uh, that I remember from the podcast and some of my reading that weren't included in, in my uh, show notes here. One of them was that in the movie, when they first identified the, the picture of Marty Martin, he had first pointed to another person and he said, Mom, that's George. I used to make movies with George. And George was a fairly famous actor in the 1930s and 40s. Um, I can't remember his last name off the top of my head. It's not someone so famous that, you know, you would probably know just by hearing it. And he had also pointed out other people in the photo and said that he knew them. Now, he also said that in the movie, he remembered a scene involving a closet full of guns. And, you know, his mother thought that this was a bit crazy. But later on in researching about the movie and looking into it, being a gangster pick, there was indeed a closet full of guns in one scene in the movie. So, you know, with this case in particular, the amount and clarity of memories that young Ryan had is just astounding. He had memories about being in heaven as well. He had memories of seeing his parents before he was alive. He claimed that he chose his parents from heaven. He chose which body he would go into and which parents he would born to. He would be born to. And, um, you know, he said that he knew they were good people, and that's why he wanted to be in their life. Now, many times as, as time went on in this story, he, he definitely said, Ryan said that he wanted to just be another, he wanted to be a little boy. But uh, he also said that, that Marty, you know, there, there was a part of his life that was pulling him back. Now, he went to meet Marty Martin's daughter, and although they did connect and they talked, he immediately went to his mother's side, and then he didn't talk anymore to Marty Martin's daughter. Now, he then said later on to his mother, she's changed, she's moved on. And his mother recounted that before meeting Marty Martin's daughter, uh, that she had said, you know, she's grown, and he kept insisting, no, no, she's small, she's just a little bigger than I am now. And after he met her, he said that her energy had changed, and she had changed a lot. And he realized at that point, he said that, you know, things go on and it's time to move on. So this is a very fascinating story. And there were many points here that were brought up that, again, you wouldn't just know off the top of your head. One of the points was that they said he was watching something on television one day and he saw them eating with chopsticks. And he said, oh, I love those. I learned how to use those when I went to China. They said that uh, his parents then took him to a Chinese restaurant not long after, and he picked up chopsticks and started eating like a real professional. And even his dad was shocked by it. And he said, oh, well, I had to learn in China because they didn't have silverware. Now, on the excellent podcast, as I say, over at the Past Lives Revisited, 
they said that uh, although his daughter doubts that Marty Martin ever went to China, there was a Chinese restaurant in Los Angeles in Hollywood that he really enjoyed and he used to go to frequently. So, you know, it's just another one of those cases. As as I've said on this show many times, you know, as has been recounted by Richard Hoagland, it only takes one white crow to prove that not all crows are black. But in this case, in particular, there were 55 instances where the past life recounts of Ryan and Marty Martin's life lined up that the doctor was able to prove. So this has been a really definitely a fascinating one. And I'd heard bits and pieces of it before. But again, I'm really appreciative to past lives revisited at covering this over. And I'll have a link in the show notes. Now, the next case is about Barbara Carlin. So Barbara Carlin was born in Sweden in 1954. Ever since she was a small child, she dreamed of another life. An awful fear would overcome her, and she would wake up shaking and frightened. She had the same horrible dreams for as long as she could remember. It all began when she was about two years old. She told her mother and father that her name was not Barbara. It was, in fact, Anne. Her mother dismissed it as a fantasy, the colorful imaginings of a child. Barbara carried on having the dreams and couldn't understand why she felt she was living in two different worlds. By this time, she knew that her name was Anne Frank and couldn't understand why her parents kept calling her Barbara. She realized that they were not her real parents, even though they insisted that they were. Barbara had no one else to talk to and continued to insist that she wasn't who they said she was. At this time, Anne Frank's The Diary of a Young Girl, published in 1947, had only been translated into a few languages, but definitely not into Swedish. There's no actual date of publication in Sweden, but it's believed to be in the late 1950s. Over the years, Barbara's two lives merged together, and Barbara insisted that a real father was going to come and collect her. By the time she was six years old, her parents were so concerned about their daughter and that she was going crazy, they decided to take her to see a psychiatrist. By this time, Barbara began to realize that nobody would ever believe her. When she visited the psychiatrist, she didn't tell him her stories. She was afraid that she would be taken away, so she kept quiet. The psychiatrist informed her parents that she was a normal little girl and not to worry about her. She was happy and just living in a child's dream world, as other children do. She must have been talking to an imaginary friend. She would soon grow out of it. But she never did. She became introverted and decided to keep quiet about it. But the memories did not go away. At the age of seven, she started school. She was so pleased to realize that now she could read and write, she finally had an outlet. She secretly started to write down her memories, but she always threw the papers away so that others would not be able to read them. Barbara continued to write. By the time she was about 11 years old, she had started to wonder about reincarnation, where we come from and where we go, thoughts reflected in her poetry. One day, a friend of the family saw some of the work that Barbara had kept and asked her parents if he could show it to someone with the idea of getting it published. This became her first book, which translates to Man on Earth. She was just 12 years old. Barbara hadn't written anything about her being the reincarnation of Anne Frank at this time, purely because she started to feel silly and slightly ashamed to think that she had told everyone that she was somebody else. You see, after she started school, Barbara realized that Anne Frank was a real person. Frank's diary had been published in 1947 but was only then beginning to become popular. Barbara realized that it was no longer smart to go around saying that she had been Anne Frank. At the age of 10, Barbara went on a trip around Europe with her parents. 
Soon they came to Amsterdam, and her parents decided to take in all of the sites. Of course, one of these is the house of Anne Frank. After calling for a cab, Barbara suddenly turned to them and said, We don't need a cab. I know exactly where we are and how to get to the house. Her parents were startled and replied, How do you know this? We have never been here before. But Barbara just turned to them and quietly replied, Let me show you the way. Her parents didn't know what to think, but they said, Okay, and they started to walk to the house. They went on crossing roads and turning corners until Barbara said, It's just around the next corner, and she was right. As they entered the house, Barbara was heard to say, They have changed the steps outside. Her parents didn't know what to say, but as they entered the house, Barbara began to get a really horrible feeling. This was her dream. The atmosphere was close, and she felt a tightness in her chest, a total and undeniable fear. The dreams were suddenly real and right in front of her. They entered the room where Anne Frank had lived. Barbara was terrified. Her hands were cold and clammy, and her mother believed that she was ill. She wanted to take her outside, but Barbara said no. She wanted to see it, to make sure everything was just the same as she had remembered, but the feelings were getting worse. She noticed that Anne Frank's pictures were still on the wall, and she excitedly told her parents, Look, the pictures are still here, but there were no pictures there. What are you talking about, her mother asked. The pictures were there. I know they were, Barbara replied. So her mother walked over to one of the men who worked there and asked if there had been pictures on the wall. The man replied yes. They had temporarily removed them, soon to be put back up behind protective glass, because people were taking them. That was when her mother realized that it was all real. Everything Barbara had told her was true. She hugged her and told her that now she understood. You are not alone anymore, Barbara decided to wait outside. On the way to the front door, she suddenly saw a man in a green uniform standing over her. She cried and ran, only to fall over the step. When she turned around, he was gone. In fact, he had never been there in the first place. It was a flashback. Barbara's mother went on to become a spiritual churchgoer, but her father dismissed it all. He didn't want anything to shake his, his safe world. The most compelling proof that Barbara is Frank reincarnated comes from Barbara's meeting with Anne Frank's cousin, Buddy Elias, who passed away in 2015. In addition to being an actor on The Love Boat, Crime Scene, and Magic Mountain, Buddy was also the last living relative of Anne Frank. He had heard about Barbara through her publisher, though at the time she hadn't yet written her story. Buddy was intrigued and asked to meet her, even though he didn't believe in reincarnation. But he was curious to meet this woman going around telling everybody that she was Anne Frank. He invited her to dinner. As Barbara knocked on the door, Buddy came out and they looked at each other. Then they fell into each other's arms and began to cry. They sat for two hours and talked, and she realized that Buddy was the president of the Anne Frank Foundation. This put him in a very vulnerable position, as he wasn't sure how the other members would react to the story. When the newspapers asked him, do you believe that Barbo is the reincarnation of Anne Frank? He answered, yes. After that, Buddy was hounded by the press to such an extent that he backed away from the interviews. But he kept in touch with Barbo once a week and stayed with him when she visited Switzerland. So again, folks, this is a very interesting case. I hadn't, I'd, I'd kind of heard little rumblings about it before, but I hadn't read about it in depth up until now. And again, this is another case that's uh, over on Past Lives Revisited that I haven't had a chance to, to listen to yet. But this is a very interesting case. One of the reasons is 
although it's someone famous, and, and this is one of the claims that skeptics often make is that, oh, well, you know, everyone who says they were reincarnated, they say they were a president or the king of France or an Egyptian pharaoh. Most of the cases in, in real fact are not that. Most people do not claim to be anyone famous. And in a case like this, who would want to claim to be Anne Frank? Aside from pity, what would you hope to gather from being reincarnated, uh, you know, as Anne Frank? It's not like you would gain anything from it. Now, it is quite interesting that uh, Barbo has written several books and has published a story of the details of her life, and I haven't dug into it any further. Uh, now, maybe I will for a further episode. But again, this is just a very interesting and fascinating episode. And over and over again in these really good reincarnation cases, you hear these stories about people going to a new area that they should have no business knowing where they're going, and they know the way to get to a place that they claim they lived in their former lives. In the earlier episode, in the earlier story about Ryan, it was the same. Uh, when I was listening to uh, information about him online, they said that when these people who were doing a documentary took him to Hollywood. Uh, he went to, they, they took him to a building where his talent agency used to be located, meaning Marty Martins. And they said that he walked up and down the halls. He went to all the floors of this building. And in fact, he asked them if they could stay longer. And he never knew, he was never told that this is where Marty Martins' talent agency was. They also took him to see one of his old homes that had been torn down, but only the swimming pool was left. But he still recounted things about living there. He also recounted things about the friend of his that he filmed movies with who was a cowboy. They took him to his house and he recounted things about spending time there and enjoying time with this person. So again, folks, this it's, it's, it's fascinating. And um, this is yet another excellent case uh, with the potential of showing that maybe there is something that happens after we pass on. Now, folks, there are many, many excellent cases out there on the Internet. But I found a couple here that are a bit shorter, so I can finish off the show, and then I'll cover over some of the other ones in future, because as I say, some of them are so well documented that I would rather take the time to go through them properly. So this first one is from China, and this one says that during the Qing Dynasty, which ran from 1644 to 1912, in China, a famous Chinese writer named Li Chen wrote a reincarnation story that Li ran into personally. The story happened in some eastern part of today's Guangdong province in China. A Qing dynasty government official once married a daughter from an intellectual family. The daughter's father was a very wise and learned man. Later on, the official and his wife had three sons. The first and second sons were both very interested in Chinese literature studies and spent most of their time reading. The youngest son, however did not say a single word after he was born. Everyone thought that this boy was deaf and dumb. The official had also given up on his youngest son and did not teach this boy anything. One day, the official asked his two elder sons to write an article on a certain topic while the father left the house to visit a relative. The two sons started thinking about the paper. They spent quite some time trying to figure out how to begin the essay, yet they simply did not know how. Just when the boys were extremely frustrated, the youngest son came over, suddenly opened his mouth, and began to talk. The little boy told his brothers how they should write the essay. The two brothers were both completely astonished. Aren't you deaf and mute? How can you suddenly speak? 
The little boy tried to calm his brothers down and told them not to panic. The boy said that he simply remembered his previous life's experiences and asked his brothers to give him a pen. Let me write the essay for you, the boy said. The two brothers believed in their youngest brother and gave the little boy a pen. The boy took the pen and began writing the essay. The boy wrote the article so smoothly that he left his two older brothers in complete awe. Very soon, the little boy finished the essay. Later that day, the boy's father returned home and decided to check on his son's essay. The father was very moved by the article and said, This essay is full of intelligent thoughts. It feels like your grandfather's writing style. I do not think you boys could have come up with such an excellent article. Tell me, did you copy this article from somewhere else? The two brothers decided they could no longer hide the truth and told their father how the article was written. The father was very surprised, to say the least. He asked his youngest son to come over and kept asking him about the article. The boy kept silent in the beginning, but under his father's heavy grilling, the boy opened his mouth and said to his father, I have been keeping silent for all these years, but today, out of a sudden urge of interest, I decided to write that article. I am afraid I must tell you the truth now. Alas, I was your father-in-law in my previous life. In my previous life, I was taking a nap one day. Suddenly, my main spirit left my body and went to my son-in-law's house. As soon as I got inside the house, I fell on the ground and felt cold all over my body. I opened my eyes and found that I had become a naked baby. I saw my daughter resting on the bed after a recent delivery. I immediately realized that I had re reincarnated, and my previous life had finished. At the time, I cried so loudly. Later on, I gradually came to understand the cycles of one's life, birth, age, illness, and death. It is the principle for ordinary people in society. What makes me extremely uncomfortable is that my daughter and my son-in-law in my previous life have now become my parents. The parent-child relationship is completely messed up for me, which is why I, may, I, I have kept silent for all of these years, and why everyone thinks I am deaf and mute. The little boy cried loudly after he told his father the story of his reincarnation experience. The father was really shocked and told the story to his wife. The wife checked the little boy's birthday, and it was indeed the same day that her father had passed away. The boy's mother felt terribly sad. Later on, the little boy told his father and mother that he wanted to go to a temple to become a Buddhist monk. He wanted to get away from his complicated parent-child relationship. The boy's parents agreed and let the boy go. When Li Ching Chen recorded this story, the boy was already in his 40s, diligently practicing Buddhism in a monastery. So that's quite an interesting article there, folks. And, and again, it's a tale from China. We can't prove it because it's definitely not happened in any of our lifetimes, but I still find it quite interesting and quite fascinating. And it links in with so many other tales you will hear of reincarnation. Now, the last one that I have here was one that I found online, and this was an anonymous email sent in to someone. And this one was sent on, well, it was published on February 8, 2015. And it's titled, Grandson Points Clues to Previous Life with Grandmother. And here's the story. It says, My only child was killed in an accident at the age of five. I adopted a baby girl two years later after being told I'd never give birth again. Three years later, I gave birth to my second son. When my first son died, I had a large portrait painted of him. It was hung on my wall since 1977 when my son died. My second son, four years ago, gave me my first grandchild, a little boy. The day he was born, I was shocked that his face was that of my first Don. So her first son must have been named Don, I'm assuming. My two sons had different fathers also. 
Last summer, my grandson and I were eating lunch when accidentally he called me mom instead of grandma. I laughed and I said, wrong name, I'm your grandma. He pointed his finger at me and he stated, you're my mom. I told him, no, I was his daddy's mom. When we got in the living room, he pointed to my deceased son's photo and said, that's me when I got bigger. I told him, no, that's your daddy's brother. He pointed his finger at me and said, I was in two mama's tummies. I told him no. He was in only one mama's belly. He again pointed his finger and stated, You're my mom when I was bigger. This has happened three times now. When I asked him what his mama's name was, he gave my daughter-in-law's name. I asked, What's the name of the other mom's belly you were in? He said he doesn't know her name yet. A few weeks later, he told me he had something to tell me. I said, Okay. He then told me he loves me very, very much and he wants to live with me and Papa. I told him he lives with his parents. He told me he never wants me to die because he loves me too much. Then he said he knows Mimi, his other grandma, loves him and he loves her too. But his love for me is special. He is still saying he was in two mama's tummies and he was there before when he was bigger. He was here before when he was bigger. And the real kicker is that he has the same face of my deceased son. Everyone who knew my first son sees it. I hear it all the time how much the little guy looks like me, same as my first son did. I'm pulled to wonder how a three-year-old can, can keep, keep saying the things that he is, and why he thinks the portrait of him is of him when he got bigger. My first son's favorite color was orange, so is my grandson's. When I ask why he loves orange-colored clothes, he replies, I don't know why, I just do. Is something going on here? Is it possible my son and grandson somehow is entwined? I've got to find out and be given an explanation of what's going on. So again, folks, I can only imagine what kind of effect this has on a family, especially on a mother who's lost a son. But again, time and time again, when you read in these reincarnation cases, you will find the same, that parents are really driven to find the answer. And why does this happen? How does this happen? So again, I find it quite interesting, and make sure you keep your eyes peeled for part two of uh, reincarnation. You know, I'll definitely be covering some more cases. I'll also get into some of the skeptical side, as I always do. You know, I'll point out what some of the skeptics say and what their thoughts are. Aside from that, I'm not sure if that will be the next episode or my next episode will be about UFOs, but I might just carry on with the reincarnation until it's finished. But uh, either way, I'll make sure that I make an announcement later this week in all the normal places, on the website and on Instagram, in the Facebook group. Aside from that, folks, I hope that you have a brilliant rest of your week. And I'd like to wrap up, as always, with a quote from Art Bell, who said, A mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter which does reside within may not be reached. Take care, folks. <laughs>